nobody will care more about your passion project than you will. It's, it's whether you're a writer or a musician or you're writing poetry or you're singing or you're, you're doing anything where you're creating, a publicist won't care more about it. Even your fans won't care more about it. Your manager won't care more about it. They could love your stuff, but they won't care about it as much as you do. And I think that comes back around to this idea of in, invest in yourself, put the time in, try and be your own promoter, try and be your own publicist, try and be your own agent, try and be your own manager, because you're going to care so much more about it than anyone else. Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Mettler, and this is a show where I interview producers, artists, and industry experts. In this interview, I talk to brothers Pete and Tom. They produce and perform under the name Andon, uh, and so we discuss their background, how they started working together as a duo, fascinating story. We talk about their workflow, uh, but most of what we talk about in this episode is the club scene the nightlife scene, uh, what it's like in New York where they live, the relation between nightlife and real estate trends, which was fascinating to me, why clubs fail so often, and their answer to all of this, Sound Room Live. Uh, We've never really talked about this stuff on the show before, so it was good for me to learn and get some insight into a field I know very little about, and I hope you find it interesting as well. If you do enjoy this episode, make sure to check out Andon on social media. You can find their links in the show notes and leave a rating and review on iTunes. Just head to edmprod.com forward slash iTunes to do so. Without further ado, here is Andon. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I am joined by Pete and Tom, better known as Andon. Is that how you pronounce it? It is. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> awesome. Now, it's great to have you guys on. Uh, you've done a ton of stuff, but I want to start with your background, your story. You're both brothers, um, but you have an interesting story of, of how you became a duo. So tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, so this is Tom here. Uh, I started DJing. It'll be about ten years this fall. Um, He's old. I, I'm not that old, <laughs> um, but yeah, started about ten years ago. Kind of fell into it. Um, was always really into throwing events, um, and was involved with some student groups back in school that um, brought DJs to campus. And when we were throwing a party uh, one Halloween, and the DJ that we had booked ended up not showing up. And so that was me raising my hand that night to say, hey, we uh, party needs to go on. And so I stepped up and tried to DJ and uh, had a lot of fun doing it and realized that maybe it was something that I could do in school. And so kind of started pursuing it after that. Um, took it down to Australia where I lived there for a little bit. Uh, got into more of the nightclub DJing. And then when I got back, um, kind of got Pete hooked on it a little bit. Uh, was listening to more electronic music at the time and uh, convinced him that it was worth worth taking a listen to. I remember uh, Tom picked me up uh, a day in high school. He had just gone back from his Australia trip and uh, we were living in New York at the time. And 
he had this like laid back Luke mix on in the car and I made it about like a minute and a half into the mix. And I was like, dude, you got to turn this off. Like, I just, I just can't do it. Um, yeah, I was listening to, you know, just like hip hop at the, at the time. But, uh, a couple years after I was in school down in Washington, DC and, uh, a buddy of mine called me up and on Saturday night said, Hey, I'm going in, into this club to see this DJ. You want to come? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure. Who, who is it? He's like, his name's Steve Aoki. And I was like, yeah, I've never heard of him, but yeah, sure. I'll go. And, uh, and absolutely no experience really before that and just kind of got hooked on that side of things. And I was still in school in DC. Tom had already moved to, to New York city to, to kind of pursue the music stuff there. And so we, uh, sort of did our separate things for, for three or four years at that point. And, uh, and then when I, when I finished school, I moved up to New York and we, uh, we started doing our music together. So Tom, why Australia? Why not? No, I, uh, I was studying environmental science um, in school and just got an opportunity to study abroad um, south of Sydney in the city of Wollongong. Um, and funny enough, uh, my neighbor, when I was living down there in the dorm, was one of the local promoters and DJs at a couple of the nightclubs in Wollongong. Mm. Um, and so immediately like, kind of hit it off with him with shared interests um, very different music tastes. Up until that point, I had really only played like Top 40 and hip hop and so kind of started as a scratch DJ. And then the music, I would say at the time in Australia, this was in 2009, uh, was significantly more kind of Eurocentric, electronic, house music. Uh, and he just gave me like an entire dump of his entire hard drive uh, to just listen to all of this type of music. And I just kind of found it a lot more enjoyable to listen to, a lot more enjoyable to DJ, uh, tagged along with him to a lot of parties, um, and ended up playing a, a number of those nightclubs uh, while I was there. And so lived there for about um, six months. And then when I came back stateside, um, electronic music, while it, it, it had been here for a while, it wasn't really kind of the, the, the music of choice in the party scene back then. Um, so I was kind of playing this like dance music at a lot of the house parties and stuff at school, um, before it really became popularized and, uh, and yeah, that's kind of, uh, Australian also me coming back with, uh, with something that I didn't go there with. Right. Right. So you, how do you become a duo though? Do you just have a conversation and you're like, let's do this together? Um, I mean, how does that work? So I think, you know, we're, we're a bit of an exception, obviously, given the fact that we are brothers. Um, yeah. And so, you know, we had this similar interest. I think we had kind of done a funnel, a, a couple of fun collabs at that point. Um, and there was just, I think there was just a conversation where we realized, you know, this is both something where we're really invested in and it would just be a lot more fun to do it together than do it separately. And mm. I was, you know, finishing up school at that time and it was kind of the point in my life where, you know, it's one of those points where it's almost like a blank slate and you can, if you want to, you know, move to a new city, it's probably a bit easier at that time than, you know, if I were to start working or doing something else somewhere else. And, and so I took the opportunity to move to New York where uh, Tom had already been for a few years. And, uh, and yeah, that was, uh, and we just kind of started uh, started up together at that point. Yeah, I, I, it was almost... I mean, it was a conscious decision to do it together when we when we first started kind of linking up. Um, we were we were doing music under a totally different name that was kind of just a combination of my name and his. 
And then as we started writing more and more music together, I think we started realizing and learning that, you know, if this was going to be something that we decided to do long term, we should be a little bit more conscious about um, kind of the brand and the image and what do we what do we actually want to create? Um, because just sticking two names together and saying, you know, this is fun is, is good and all, but I think there was a lot more to the message that we wanted to get across. Um, and that was kind of what brought around Andon um, back in 2016. So where does Andon come from? Is there any story behind that name? Was it just... Yeah, so, so we originally were kind of obsessed with um, the ampersand uh, symbol. So the ampersand right. is the and symbol and something so simple we saw as a connector of two things. And we really wanted to kind of um, play homage almost to our experience getting into dance music, which was so much around the community aspect and mm. meeting new people and having a shared interest in something that was kind of left field at the time and wasn't necessarily mainstream. And so because we thought that this, you know, ampersand and, and a natural connector and everything um, was what we kind of wanted to found our brand on. And so we decided that let's just make a kind of made up word and tack some other letters onto it. And Andon was kind of created. Um, yeah. That's so cool. Now, has it been a, I'm, I'm really curious, has it been a smooth, fluid process working together, no issues, or have there been challenges? I think being, being brothers has its own challenges because no matter how, how much we can get into a, a tiff, we, uh, we're unfortunately stuck, yeah. stuck together regardless. Yeah. So. But I think that's almost like a, an advantage in a way that there's, there's never any hesitation to just, you know, be very upfront with each other because mm -hmm. there is like such, you know, a, like long standing relationship. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, yeah I, th I think that's a good point. I mean, I think whenever you're working with anyone, especially not a uh, not a sibling, um, it's easy to like beat around the bush and not be direct with someone because you either don't want to hurt their feelings or you don't want them to judge you. And I, I would say with us, it was it's definitely been a learning curve because being honest, especially in a creative process, can sometimes be pretty difficult. Um, but I, I I think if anything, we've learned how to. I mean communicate to each other's style very well and yeah uh, i mean i'm not as afraid of hurting his feelings because um <laughs> i don't know but yeah they're <laughs> definitely i mean th but there has been a learning curve and, you know, on the other side of things too like you know when you're when you're doing any any sort of creative work it's it's very much like in a, an extension of of yourself and it's saying you know i have the opportunity to create literally anything i want and here's what i chose to create and if someone else says like yeah it sucks like it, it can be, it can be tough. Um, but I think, you know, we've, we have come to kind of get the, get to the stage where we can be upfront and it's not, it's never a personal attack. It's never saying like, I think, yeah. you know, you as an artist are not, you know, capable of doing something better or whatever. It's like, I think you are capable of doing something better and like, we're going to do what we can to, to make the, you know, create the best thing that we can. And being upfront and open is, is a huge, huge part of that. I don't, I'm not sure if this has happened, but how would you approach like a disagreement in terms of a song perhaps, or even just artistic direction, like branding or marketing or something like that? If you are at odds, how do you work through that as a duo? Yeah, so um, 
I, I think what we've at least come to realize, having now worked together at least for, I would say, the last five or six years, um, is that we have very different skill sets. And mm. so like I, I trust Pete very much on the engineering side of things. Um, he has a fantastic ear. Um, and like when it comes to feedback, generally we'll, we'll try something out and we try and come to like a collective agreement that it either works or it doesn't work. Um, when, when we do disagree, um, I, I would say that usually it's, it's not worth like getting in an argument over. And so if it's usually on the, the engineering or production side of things, I'll let Pete run with it. If it's on yeah. the, the branding side of things, Pete usually lets me run with it. Um, mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, like, you know, there's two of us. We have, I would say, a pretty close team of other individuals who we sometimes bounce ideas off of. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, I, trying to create something that is perfect is difficult. And I don't think anyone should ever strive to make this perfect thing all the time. You know, if something isn't great, it's okay. Just finish and kind of move on and continue to build and continue to create. Um, I mean, that, that's kind of one of the biggest pieces of feedback um, or best advice I got when I was starting out, which was um, don't worry so much about trying to build whatever the end game is or whatever the, the end idea is. Just build a little bit at a time because I think as you continue to learn and you continue to build either a brand or a song or anything, it, it continues to evolve and usually in a direction that you didn't expect. And if you try and constrain something with, this end idea that you have, generally it'll come out half-baked and you won't be happy with it. So just be okay letting things be iterative and evolve. Let's say you're sitting down to work on a new project. What does that look like for you? Because I mean, it's as easy as a solo producer to just do what you want, blah, blah, blah. But what does the work split look like for you? I know some duos try and share it 50-50. Others will focus on, you know, like the songwriting and then someone else will do the engineering side of it. What does that look like for you? So um, from a production standpoint, usually I'm writing the initial ideas. Um, Tom is a really talented A&R. And right. in a way, I will put a lot of effort into just writing just sketches for songs, like spend two, three hours, you know, for seven days in a row, 10 days in a row, whatever, and just kind of shoot over these seven to 10 ideas. And then we'll sit down and say, okay, here are the, the two best ones. Here are the ones you want to finish, or here's the one best one, or like, eh, not really feeling any of these. Um, and so Tom is very much, you know, guiding my direction from a creative perspective, both in like filtering out, like this is what is not the good material and this is what is. And a lot of times, you know, like when, you, when you're making it yourself, you're so close to the projects and it's tough to kind of have like a fresh perspective on things. Um, but then when it's then like, you know, revisiting those kind of initial sketches, like from a production standpoint, typically, you know, I'll go in and, and make some edits, get more feedback and we kind of go back and forth like that. Um, so like, I think, you know, a lot of like the kind of individual, like technical stuff, um, is kind of like my side of things. A lot of the big picture creative direction, how all these individual songs fit together and like the larger picture of what we're offering. Um, that's a lot of Tom's side of things. You mentioned that you, uh, in your email to me that you're independent, so you don't have a manager. Um, none of that stuff. Why? 
I mean, it's it's not common. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, another piece of advice that I got early on was do as much as you can for as long as you can until you get to a point where someone on the other side of the industry needs you more than you need them. I think a pitfall that a lot of early artists early on in their career fall into is I need a manager and I need an agent. And that's, and that's actually something that I fell into um, right when I moved to New York, I actually ended up getting a manager within the first like six months. This was even before Pete and I linked up. Um, And I, I, I think it was a good learning experience. I, I, I think I was able to get my feet wet in a lot of the New York scene in a way with that, but by relinquishing like certain responsibilities, you don't learn as much about the industry and you don't learn as much about how the non-creative side of things work, how the actual like intellectual property rights work and how um, like the branding and PR and all of that sort of aspect of the industry that I think if you can learn, then you can better navigate through it yourself. And so um, we, I, I would say, have stayed independent because I, I personally had had some management experience uh, back in school. I interned uh, with a management company that represented Porter Robinson. And so I got some insight there into kind of the process. Um, and then more on the booking side of things have slowly come up through New York and have been booking us basically ever since we joined as a group. And so I have some insight there as well. And I would say, at least for the time being, we're pretty much at full steam ahead. And um, a lot of our time is put into making music, but a lot of it is also put into the management and branding and booking. And at least right now, I, I feel like I'm kind of rambling, but I, I don't think like, I don't think we really need one at yeah. the stage that we're at. Well, and that's, and that's, I think another one of the huge values of us, you know, kind of like trusting each other's skill sets that there is like this sort of bit of uh, detachment almost that we like, because we do have these separate skill sets and because, you know, we are so invested on the business side of things and it's not just hundred percent about creating music and only that, that we can take a step back and, get a bit of perspective on like, you know, well, what does this look like from a growth perspective, from a business perspective, you know, and how can we actually navigate on that side of things where it isn't hundred percent just about creating music all the time. If there's someone listening to this, who's at a good point with their production, like the quality is good, they're getting plays, starting to build a brand and they, they hear that and they go, I want to self-manage for a bit, at least for a while until uh, like you said, the other person needs me more than I need them. What are the key things that they should learn or look into or research if they want to self-manage? Because I can imagine some people have no idea what that even looks like or what they need to learn about. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I would say a couple things. Um, if, if their production is, is solid, if they're getting plays, I would say one of the biggest things is start learning about uh, music contracts. So both um, signing records to labels, uh, publishing agreements, um, understanding how distributors work, um, any of that sort of knowledge so that when you do get a contract back from a label, you actually understand how the royalty splits work and you understand kind of what other um, 
like optionality you have moving forward with that label. A lot of times labels will make things into contracts that actually make it exclusive that they have first right of refusal on future music that you create. Um, and for the self-managed artists, you want to be care careful of that sort of stuff because uh, one, you don't want to find yourself in breach of a contract, but two, a lot of times as an artist, you're able to speak up for yourself and say, look, I don't want this in the contract, but I want it redlined. And I would say any respectable label would respect that request. Um, I, I think, you know, from a bigger picture perspective, one of the reasons why I think we feel comfortable doing this self-management thing is that we both have had, we, we both have played roles within the space of the music industry that isn't the artist. Like Tom right, worked right. for a management company and he got that experience. Like I promoted parties for three years in DC and like I got that side of things. And while, you know, we were like being the artist was always, you know, the top priority. Like we got to see some of the other perspectives. And, you know, if you're, you know, if you're making music in your bedroom, even if it's great music, but you know, that's your only perspective, it's, you know, how do you self-manage? Like, yeah, you, you can, you can learn things from a textbook, but I think actually getting it, like the real personal experience, uh, at least for us, and this is only speaking from personal, like from mm -hmm. you know our, our background, like that has been the huge value. And so like get involved, like promote some parties, see if like, like work as a sound tech at a nightclub, like, mm -hmm. you know, see, just email a couple artists and say like, hey, I'm good at graphic design or I'm good at writing emails, like let me help out in some way. Um, and I think like that is a way that you can really get your feet wet to then have a more holistic perspective on Actually, as an artist, how do you navigate yourself through so many, uh, you know, other types of people are going to be in other situations and you know, all that, that sort of stuff. That's great advice. So you've been in New York for a while now. You've been in the club scene. Uh, how have you seen that change over the last, say, decade? Well, I would say that the, the, the club scene for electronic music has continued to move farther and farther away from Manhattan. Um, yeah. Like the, you know, the hot spots five years ago were in a neighborhood called Williamsburg, which is in Brooklyn. Uh, now they're in Bushwick, which is even farther out in, in Brooklyn. Uh, they're moving into areas called Ridgewood, which is out almost in Queens. Um, and I would also say that the New York nightlife scene, at least in Manhattan, which at a time uh, was very club centric and lots of parties, um, has almost completely disappeared, and it's just kind of a ghost yeah. of itself. There, there are a number of nightclubs which have been longstanding that um, thrive because of um, what what would be called a, a table service client, uh, people that have come in with a group of people and. Um, basically spent thousands of dollars to sit at the table and drink vodka um, all night uh, and bad uh, vodka bad yeah. vodka and that uh, <laughs> and that and that supplements the cost of a of a name brand DJ playing the night where no one really at yeah. the club actually knows who's playing um, and that's uh, it's it's not great it's, but it is yeah. it is what it is and that's I think what the business model needs to be in a place like Manhattan where you have so many people traveling to from out of town that don't necessarily know where to go. Um, and you have a lot of corporate clients as well from kind of yeah. the, the day jobs and, to go to these places. So, and, it, and it's happened in a lot of cities, but like in New York, especially like typically what happens is, you know, clubs will move into places where they can get a space for, 
you know, relatively inexpensive and they'll start throwing good parties like, you know, what is happening further out in Brooklyn right now. And in the last 20 years, you know, the one neighborhood that was like that in the mid nineties was the meatpacking district. And they literally packed meat there. There was, you know, factories where, you know, they would package up meats and then go to the grocery stores and the clubs opened up and then they became a cool place for people to go. And so people wanted to start living there. And so the Skyrise apartments went in and then the cost of rent went up and then the cost of operating the nightclub went up. And then unless you sold, you know, bottle service to people who are going to come in and spend $5,000 on a night, you go out of business or you move your club to somewhere where the rent's cheaper. Mm. And so it's kind of like clubs open up and then, you know, all the rich people. move. Yeah, it's, it, it is, there is this cycle and I, I can't remember the source, but I was reading an interesting article that basically talked about how you will have artists move into uh, lower rental um, apartment buildings. Uh, artists then kind of will bring in, music acts and there will be a really cool kind of renaissance of music scene. Uh, and then as kind of realtors and real estate people realize that, Oh, this is now the cool place. This is the hit place. Let's start developing this a little bit. And then that's when the apartment buildings come in and that's when mm. rents go up and that's when artists can no longer afford those rents. And then they go find the next place. Yeah. Um, so even, even places like Bushwick, which is now home to, I mean, a, a, a dozen a dozen nightclubs that if you, you read about New York, you're hearing about the Brooklyn Mirage and you're hearing about House of Yes and all of these spots, um, which at the time, even even a few years ago, that was kind of on an almost this fringe area yeah. of New York. And now the, clubs and now the rent in Bushwick is almost the same as it is in Williamsburg. And you have these sky rise oh. apartments going in and it's it's still cool and it's still there. And I don't think there has been like the next neighborhood that's really figured out where is it going to be next. But in three years from now, that area will be what Williamsburg is yeah. today. So, yeah. And so now you have the split in the music between the, the more mainstream EDM kind of stuff is all in Manhattan and the underground music is kind of, you know, 20, 30 minutes out to Brooklyn. It's crazy to me. I, like I've never thought about the economics of all this and how nightlife influences real estate. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll have to send you the, uh, the, the article. Yeah, like I, I got to dig it up. It yeah. was, it was a really, really interesting thing because there's a, there's an area of New York called um, Sunset Park. And I think that was actually the, the case study. Sunset Park used to be all industrial buildings. And then um, you kind of had exactly that artists were moving in they actually developed several of the warehouse properties on the river into these, what they're calling, I think it's called, um, industry city. Yeah. Industry city. And it, so, I mean, it is awesome. It yeah. is absolutely incredible. These buildings are like these beautiful old warehouses that they've basically put in plants and they've developed them a little bit. And it's this really cool scene, but I mean, it's, it is exactly that. It was an area that could have been like this amazing kind of, music renaissance for another area of Brooklyn. And I think and real estate like, people realize yeah. this is waterfront property mm -hmm. and let's develop this and make this something else. And, and now there's like a WeWork in an Apple store. Yeah. Wow. Actually, there's actually an Apple store, but yeah. There will be. Yeah, there will be. <laughs> Apple, <laughs> Apple if, you're, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, New York also, I would say, probably moves at a pace that's much faster than most cities right. in terms of these places. I mean, if you... I think if you survive as a nightclub more than 18 months, uh, you are in a small, small, small percentage wow. yeah. of clubs that have actually survived. So the, the turnover rate is extremely quick. And yeah. so what ends up happening is you do have these places pop up. And if one is successful, a lot of others pop up in the area. So 
I could talk about it for a while. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty interesting, man. It's fascinating to me because it, it doesn't happen here, like at all. Um, I don't think we don't have a huge nightlife scene in New Zealand, but people don't usually pick real estate based on yeah. the clubs. But I'm curious, are there any discernible differences between the nightclubs that last longer than 18 months and the ones that don't? Or is it just a matter of luck? So for me, the best case study for a club that has opened up in somewhat, somewhat recently and has stayed true to their brand and is thriving, at least from the outside looking in, is this place called Output in Williamsburg. And they opened up probably like six, seven six, years six ago. Years ago yeah. um, and so, you know, this neighborhood we've mentioned a few times, Williamsburg at that point, it was still kind of in, it was definitely a hot spot, but wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. And I think the difference is that they they do everything in-house for the most part. So like very rarely are using like outside promoter groups. They mm-hmm. stu- they've stayed true to this kind of like underground sound. Um, and they were, at least in New York, the first people to pioneer this no photos policy inside the club. Um, okay. And so it was always this idea that, and also no bottle service. And right. so it was, you go, you pay your, you know, 25, 30 bucks for a ticket. You go have a pretty clear idea of the kind of music you're going to hear. Everyone buys their drinks from the bar. Everyone's on the same plane. And they also invest a lot of money into a really good sound system and like production setup. And they really just haven't changed that in six years with the exception of adding like a really cool rooftop, which they do these like day parties in, which are, which are great. Um, but you know, all the other clubs that have come and gone, even like the ones, you know, that are, you know, geographically pretty close, it's a lot of them, you know, they kind of have this, I, this idea that, you know, we're going to open up and be an underground club. There was this place called flash factory that opened in Manhattan probably like two and a half years ago. And like opening night was like Martinez brothers. And the next day was Jamie Jones or something like that. And then within a year they were booking hip hop acts and selling tables. And, Mm. you know, as soon as that happens, then it's, you know, it's, it's just, you know, off to like a different business model, I guess. But, but yeah, I think the, the like output put the music and the experience as a club goer first. And they kind of just built this culture of, you, you know, you're going to go there and you're going to get a good party and there's going to be no BS. And with all these other venues, I think they tried to, and then they caved for whatever reason right. to throw these other kinds of parties. I don't know if you agree with that, Tom, but I, I, I do agree with that. I think at the end of the day, like New York gets to have any sort of real estate of New York, it's expensive. And uh, I think a lot of these clubs, when they realize that they're not actually doing the numbers that they need to survive, they say, well, what do we need to do to survive? And it comes mm. back to what's going to be the biggest ticket item. And from a, from a business standpoint, um, liquor has the biggest margin out of anything else and so it's easiest for them to sell a bottle that they can basically get wholesale for ten dollars and sell it for three hundred and fifty dollars and at least on paper that makes sense to them but then that brings in a different demographic of people which changes the experience and the experience at least in my opinion is what makes a club timeless so um and also if a club owns the building which there have been a couple scenarios of that those ones I need to mention a tool that I've been using for a few years now, Splice. Splice is a platform and community for music producers that's revolutionizing the way music is produced. And they have a few different tools. Splice Studio, which allows you to collaborate online with friends and also share project files with fans. 
They host remix contests on their community page. They also offer plugins on a rent-to-own program, so you don't need to pay a huge amount up front for a synth like Serum or a set of tools like Ozone uh, or Neutron. And finally, they have Splice Sounds, which is my favorite. Splice Sounds allows you to pay a small fee every month, say $8, for a bunch of credits which you can use to download the samples you want to download. I use this a ton. 90% of the samples I use in my music are from Splice Sounds. You want to know why? Because I hand-picked them. It's really easy to filter through their library and find the sounds that you need based on key, based on tempo, uh, whether it's a vocal sample or a serum pluck preset. It takes only a few seconds to find and it's something that might inspire a full song. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, as an EDM Prod listener, you can sign up to Splice Sounds and get your first month free. Just head to splice.com forward slash EDM Prod create and enter the promo code EDM Prod when you sign up. Surely a club relies on repeat customers. Like that should be the metric that as a club owner you want to focus on. Or am I wrong? Yeah, I... I would say repeat customers, yes, but more importantly, especially with how easy it is to post something on a Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, it's just like, I'm not going to go and post a photo on Instagram of a place that I didn't have a good time at. But if I had one of the best nights of my life, you bet I'm going to tell every single one of my friends that, oh, have you been to this place? It's unbelievable. Uh, I can't wait to go again. And it's kind of this, it's a, it's really, it comes down to, I think the community and if you're creating an experience that people want to continue embracing, they're going to want to embrace it and they're going to want to do it with their friends and other people. Because I think people have this like innate interest in sharing awesome things with the people that they care about. Um, and people just end up building those communities. And I think that's what ends up differentiating. And it's really interesting that you mentioned that now because, you know, if I think of the probably like the three most successful or at least in my mind successful clubs in New York right now. It's it's output that we talked about. It's House of Yes, which throws literal theme parties every night. And if like you aren't in full costume, you're gonna feel out of place. And it's the Brooklyn Mirage, which is this enormous like outdoor like castle basically. And when I think of each of those venues, I think of the unique experience you get by going to those places. But if you ask, you know, what is the unique experience that you get when going to like a marquee or a lava or like any of these other clubs, which, you know, they're fun clubs and like, they're fine, but like what, what makes them unique? Like I, it's a lot more difficult of a question for me to answer than what makes some of these other places unique. Right. Right. Uh, now tell me about sound room live. What is that? Oh uh, yeah. So I, I'm super passionate about this one. So maybe I guess in 2016, when we started um, the Andin project, um, I was really interested in having a monthly radio show. Um, we came up with the idea Sound Room, um, kind of along the same lines as Andin. Just take something simple that means something. And when we were brainstorming names for the radio show, I was like, well, I, I, it's going to be music, so there will be sound. And like, I want to do it in a place where like people can hang out. <laughs> And so maybe like a room and what if we call it a sound room? Um, and it was simple, but it worked. And so we started this monthly kind of podcast and about a year into it, um, I, I was chatting with Pete and I was like, look, I'm, I'm kind of tired of trying to 
go through the process of playing at nightclubs in New York. There's an unbelievable amount of competition. Like navigating the promoter and event scene can be difficult. And I was like, look, I, I think we can probably throw our own party uh, if we can find some cool places that either don't know any better about us, like actually throwing a party or just like nice people. And I'm like, yeah, come on, br- bring some speakers in and like throw a party. So um, Sound Room Live is really the the live show of our of our monthly kind of podcast. And so we started Sound Room Live um, actually at a Australian clothing store. Um, and you said uh, the story about Baron. So uh, yeah. So, yet. oh man, that's such a good story. So, so um, basically one of my mates from when I was living in Australia ended up moving to uh, New York City yeah. and was helping manage an Australian clothing store in Soho called Convicts. And I had dropped into the store a few times. They had some like awesome Australian import stuff, stuff that was at the time even too edgy for me to wear. <laughs> and uh, one day I was like, you have speakers underneath the, uh, the like the, the cash register table. Like what are those for? He's like, oh yeah, mate. Uh, sorry, I won't, I won't do, I won't do the <laughs> accent. Uh, <laughs> I was like, whoa. Like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he was like, yeah, you know, sometimes, sometimes we like throw parties. I was like, cool. Can I like throw a party here one night? He's like, yeah, man, for sure. We have a, we have a thing with Paps Blue Ribbon, which is kind of like a, a cheap beer company where they'll like give us a few cases and yeah, just bring your decks and come on out. So we, we started Sound Room Live in like this small little Australian clothing store. And like the first, the first party we threw, maybe like 30 people showed up. It was just a cool experience. Like it was glass windows on front, people walking up and down the street, kind of like peep in and we're like, what's going on? Oh, there's free beer. Like, let's just hang out. Oh, this music doesn't suck. This is kind of cool. Then the second one we threw, there was maybe like 60 or 70 people. Like it was kind of like flowing out onto the street. More people walking up and down the street. were checking it out. Um, our friends were coming around. We had a couple other DJ acts perform. Um, and then we were like, wow, this is like kind of cool. And there's some demand for a party in New York that's not at a nightclub that's like a little bit more social. Like people can actually talk. They're not screaming over loudspeakers. Uh, there's no like strobe lights and lasers. It's kind of like this laid back vibe. Um, and it just kind of feels like a cool community thing. Um, and so we started working with a couple, um, a couple companies that actually are, uh, they help people find event spaces. And so we've basically used, um, this company called peer space, um, which it's not that difficult to use, but they list, it's like an Airbnb for event spaces. And so we'll peruse, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of spots in New York and we'll just find what we think are these unique kind of one of a kind, uh, spaces. And generally, we'll just reach out to the owners. We'll set up some time to do walkthroughs. If we feel like it's a good fit, then it's like full steam ahead and Soundroom Live is there. So following the Australian clothing store, um, we found a guy in the East Village in Manhattan whose basement in the apartment that he owned actually used to be a 1970s underground rock and roll nightclub. And it got shut down at the end of the 70s and literally like like dust on the like ceiling. No like it. no one has touched this thing. Wow. And it was two floors. It had a massive like human cement skull that had to have been 20 feet tall. And the band would actually play in like the open mouth of this skull. And 
we're like, man, we're going to throw a party here. It'll be DJs. We'll set it up. He was like, totally cool, man. I'm just going to be upstairs eating my Chinese food, hanging out. Uh, and we had like a hundred people come out and we had some more DJs and Pabst Blue Ribbon sponsored the event again. So there was free beer. Um, and it, everyone was like, dude, just keep going with this. This is awesome. Mm. So, so the next one that we did was at a loft in Greenpoint in Brooklyn. And that one was 120 people. And so it just kind of kept growing organically as word got around. Um, and then the last one that we just did, which was now the, the third one that sold out, um, we did north of 150 people, and that was at a really cool, like, just vibes, 1970s, like, funky little disco spot in Brooklyn that I guess they do, like, goat yoga and some other, like, you know, artsy things. Um, and I think the, the most important thing is that when someone comes to Soundroom Live, that they leave saying, I don't know how that exists in New York and how, like, they've captured this kind of house party yeah. vibe of there's no bartenders like go grab a beer out of the cooler and just listen to music and meet new people. But like, I can't wait for the next one. And so I think like for us doing them like a couple times a year and creating these experiences and something that feels so anti New York, um, is such a breath of fresh air for, I think a lot of people that come out to these parties. That's amazing. I love that. That sounds like such a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, if you couldn't tell, I get, I get very jazzed <laughs> up. I'm like so excited because yeah. it's my baby, and it's also like I I I love I love this music, yeah. and I think there's so many good things that can come out of like the yeah. local house music community, and sometimes yeah. that gets lost in the nightclub scene. So being able to take it out of nightclubs and put it into these like really cool spaces. Yeah, um, and and that's why like I'm I'm so happy we're able to to talk about the clubs before this, Sam, because I think it does put in perspective like how much crap and just like BS there is around the club scene and like right. trying to throw parties. And so it was literally like, you know, we just need music. We need a cool space. Like we need some, some beer for people and like, you know, people that don't suck. And that's what we've, what, you know, we try to bring together with these parties. And it's, uh, it's I mean, just kind of trying to keep it like pretty organic, trying to make it feel like it's, you know, just a house party and, and everyone's friends, like a friends and family sort of thing. And, um, and it's crazy that that's all it takes to differentiate in New York, but that's, you know, that's kind of the reality of things too. And so we've, you know, been able to, to, to build up this sort of like this experience that, you know, we're, we're both like super passionate about and now it's become really entwined with, um, you know, just sure. and in, in general. Yeah. And, and, it, and even going back to like the idea of doing things independently, I, I'm a firm believer in if you want to do something like yeah. try and do it yourself. And if you find that, you can't do it, then, then try and find some people who share a vision and can help you. Um, but this was very much like started very small and didn't try and like make it anything that it wasn't and just kind of let it grow and grow and grow. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those things take time. And I, I think especially in today's day and age where the shelf life of like a new single is maybe two weeks and everyone is always on to the next trend and craze. It's very hard to think about things in terms of months and even years in terms of building like a project. Um, but I, I, I'm a firm believer that if you want to build something worthwhile, it takes time and you have to put in the effort. And you know, it took 10 years to make the overnight success is, is, a, is a real thing, so. Yeah, I totally agree. I've got a follow-up question for that and then just a few more before we wrap up. You kind of mentioned the, the BS in the New York club scene. What do you mean by that? I mean, I know nothing about it. I'm sure a lot of 
listeners, people listening to this as well have no idea what you're talking about. Um, but I imagine it's similar to what happens elsewhere. Yeah. So I, I can talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I think what's pretty similar elsewhere is this concept that if you're a local DJ, you're, uh, you're wearing a lot of hats. One of them is having to promote the venue mm. and generally you will be viewed as uh, what's called like a sub promoter. So with 99% of nightclubs, uh, the nightclubs will outsource um, promoters to basically bring people to their nightclub. And a lot of times it's actually the promoter who is booking the local DJs and not the club itself. And so what ends up happening is the promoter then says, uh, all right, you want to DJ my party? That's great. I also need you to bring 30 friends and also try and help sell tables. And that's great and all, not really at all. Uh, and I think when you're trying to get your feet wet, you see that as this is my only opportunity to actually DJ a show. And so you kind of just go with it and you try and do that. And you end up, I think, in a place where you're so far removed from what it is that you actually love doing, which is DJing and the music, that it, it's no longer fun. And so kind of going back to this idea of BS, um, especially in New York, like with so many parties, if you go on to Resident Advisor or any of the, the websites that aggregate the number of events going on, New York on any weekend or even weekday nights, I mean, there are dozens, if not like a hundred plus events going on. And wow. so it, there is so much competition. And so this, this BS comes about from, you know, you need to bring out people, you need to help bring in the business. Like there's so many other people out there that are throwing other parties, you need to do this. And you focus way less on the music and creating the experience and more just about trying to get heads through the door. Yeah. And that just, it sucks. And that was another big reason behind Soundroom Live. So. Yeah. I mean, it sounds um, like it just becomes a commodity. Yeah. I mean, it is. And I, I think, you know, that's why a lot of these parties and nightclubs, they, they, they go fast and they burn yeah. out quickly because like from an experience standpoint, like if what different and what differentiates your one club with this promoter from the other one that has this promoter exactly. that are all more or less yeah. doing the same thing. And that's why like, I mean, the thing that's always baffled me is like you compare it to any other type of business, like that's a car dealership, right? You're not going to hire car salesmen because they have a lot of friends who want to buy cars. So you're going to hire a car salesman who's really good at selling and can like create something that people want to buy. And so mm. like from a nightclub perspective, there's this idea that we're going to bring in promoters or bring in DJs who can bring their friends and there isn't this emphasis put on bringing in good DJs or like building an actual experience. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that analogy was good or not, but yeah, no, that makes. I, sense. I, don't, I don't, I don't think you could ever be a car salesman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, you've had uh, a lot of releases on labels like zero three, uh, colorize euphonic. What's it like working with these labels? They're not, major labels but they are quite big um in the progressive house slash trance scene what's it like working with these labels and also with kaya and albert i love them yeah no ralph and stevie are, are great they uh we we got connected with them randomly on a, a promo email we sent out about two years ago um just for a, a remix we had done they hit us back saying hey we like this do you guys have any originals and 
we had just had a remix get rejected from a, a competition or get rejected in general. We made like two changes to it and sent it to them. And they said, okay, this is cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll take it for the label. Wow. Um, and so that's kind of how we got linked in with them. But, but no, the, the labels we've been able to work with are really great. And to your point, you know, they aren't, they aren't major labels, obviously, but they, in this space, they are, um, you know, they're, they're good sized labels. A lot of them have, uh, they are kind of under the umbrella of larger, uh, larger labels. And so you look at like colorize, they're under enhanced, uh, zero three on the back end is connected to the tool room. Um, we released on FSOE parallels, which is under future sound of Egypt, like Ali and Fila's label. And so it's, it's kind of cool because you do get this kind of one-on-one attention and a lot of these labels, it's, you know, a, a team of people that can count on my, on one hand who, who are running the show. But you do get some of the benefits of kind of having these connections to the, the larger kind of like parent labels. Um, but, but they're great. I mean, they, in general, like we've, we've had really, really good experiences. We've been able to maintain pretty much all creative control over what we're doing, which I think is really important. And yeah. I mean, Caillou and Albert, especially like, you know, they're, they're, they're just so supportive of our music and, and they, they really have a vision for, just bringing, like finding what, what is, what is the, the next, uh, the next new young producer who's making cool stuff. And those are the kinds of people that they're releasing on the label. Like right. they have, they have their guys that they've been releasing music with since, you know, the nineties, but you know, they're, they're not afraid to, to sign, you know, someone new with, you know, a couple hundred Facebook followers. And like they, they brought us out to a show in LA. We're playing with them in Berlin in a few weeks. Like they're, they're just so supportive of, you know, our music and they've been really, really great to work with. I think I, I also have a lot of perspective um, working with them. It, it's great that they've been doing this for as long as they have. I, I think especially with how popular dance music has become in the U.S., you see that there's a very large amount of junior and kind of green people that are working um, at labels and in the industry that, I mean, have no kind of – uh, experience actually handing a physical demo to mm-hmm. someone. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's great that it's become this popular and it's awesome that there are these opportunities that exist so that young people can get involved. Um, but you have a group like Caillou and Albert who have been doing this for 20 plus years and they've seen it change and they've seen it evolved and they know the types of things that no matter what decade you're in, like these are the things that will continue to work. And these are the things that are kind of going to be fast burns that aren't like worth putting your time into. Um, and so because of that, like, I, I think I've been able to learn a lot from them. Um, and it's just, it's also fun, like seeing old photos of like Ralph and Stevie playing like array <laughs> from back in like 2002 and being like, wow, you guys had time back then when you brought like a thousand CDs to a club Wow. Um, and I, I don't know. I, I respect that because I, I, I played a vinyl set in New York for the first time like a few weeks ago, and the crate was fifty pounds. And <laughs> while I enjoyed myself, I don't know how anyone in their right mind would like carry those around. From club, so, <laughs> oh man, uh, question for Pete: What's it like working with Hyperbits? But yeah, so uh, Tom was actually the first person to to meet Sarek or Hyperbits. Um, I, Sarek used to live here in Brooklyn, and. Uh, you guys got linked up and was it just through a show or just, yeah, well, uh, I, I think I actually sent him a bunch of my music. Like I, I've always been the one that's like, Hey, I have some music and I don't think it sucks, but maybe I'll get some feedback. And I think I sent him 
something and he sent a very polite message back. Um, and I, yeah, it just ended up being like trade a few Facebook messages and then, Hey, are you going to this party? Uh, yeah, I'm going to this party. I'll meet you there. And then we linked up and we're like, Oh yeah, yeah, we can be friends. (laughs) And then, uh, and then, yeah, long story short, then he got linked up with Pete. He did some work with us, helping us with like mixing and mastering like way back in the day. And then, yeah. Um, and then, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, I was looking to pick up some, some kind of more like music related work and, uh, it kind of came at a time when Sarek was also looking to bring on some extra help for the masterclass because things were growing so much. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I started originally just like helping like teach some of the classes and then kind of as time has gone on over the last uh, year and a half or so, um, I've been working more consistently with Sarek as we're, you know, building out ideas for new courses and, and, you know, ultimately releasing them. We've re- released, uh, you know, one earlier this summer, Mixed Master Flow, which, which is, um, you know, so far, so far been, uh, been, you know, really exciting for us. Um, and yeah, now it's going to be my fourth time around with the masterclass come this fall, which is kind of crazy, but you know, I've, I'm working on the actual, you know, like content side of things and like, you know, creating things that we're, we're teaching our students and actually teaching some of the, the live classes. But, you know, for me, it's also really exciting working on the business side of things because he, you know, at the end of the day, he has like a, a really exciting, you know, yeah. successful startup and, you know, being it on on the ground level for something like that, like just from a business perspective, it's like really, really fun. And the fact that it's in the, you know, the, the music world, like that's, it's, it's super exciting to be involved with and like Sarek in, in general, is just an awesome dude, um, like really, really mm. smart and fun to work with. And, and Zach, who actually was on the show recently, you know, is, is, is working with Sarek as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And, you know, Sarek has been supportive of our music under, under Andon in, in many ways as well. And, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I've, I've had a really, really fun experience with him for sure. I love it. Love it. So what's coming up for you guys in the next zero to 12 months? Wow. Zero to 12. That's a, that's a big range. Okay. <laughs> well, we can say zero to six. Okay. Yeah. Um, so on the, uh, I mean, to start with the easy stuff, we have a bunch of shows coming up. Um, we, we've been playing quite a bit with the Anjuna Beats guys the last year or so. And so um, we have uh, one of those shows in Brooklyn coming up. Uh, I mentioned we have um, a show in Berlin, actually our first international show with Kai and Albert at the nice. beginning of September, um, which which will be a blast. We're, we're making a little Euro trip out of it, um, and so we'll be we'll be continuing to play shows throughout the uh, the rest of the year. Um, on the music front, we have uh, a few releases already scheduled. One uh, bigger remix, which we're really excited about. That we can't say too too much about yet. Um, and we've been, uh, we, is it, well, I don't know what you're talking about, but, okay. <laughs> uh, we, we, have, we, we've traditionally not collaborated, um, on any music. Um, but we're, we're, we're excited cause we have a, um, we have a track that we're just wrapping up right now with Matt Fax, who, um, oh, I, I had listened to, I mean, coming up listening to progressive music and now kind of getting to work with him has been. Awesome. Very underrated producer, in my opinion. I, I would, he's, I he's would agree. He yeah. is awesome. Uh, we'll actually get to probably road test that track um, this weekend in Brooklyn, awesome. which will be. Uh, it's always fun playing something for the first time over a speaker system that can make you go deaf. So um, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm happy to blast this one. Yeah. Um, but no, it, it should be exciting. And, and you know, like you know, Sam, we do these. Like we call them our. Uh, Actually, I don't know if we have a name. Quarterly ending catch-ups. But basically, every three months, we'll do this big picture catch-up and kind of 
almost, it's not starting from the ground up, but it's saying, you know, what's been working well, what hasn't been working well, what do we need to change? And then we kind of been doing this almost in like three month segments. And so like, yeah, you know, there are some, some long-term goals, but it's, it's very much focusing on, you know, what can we do better right now and how can we continue to keep things going over the next, you know, quarter of a year, a third of the year. And I think that's like one helped us stay really in touch with making sure that we're, we're really getting something positive out of every week and every month, but also being open to change and that, you know, something that we thought was a really good idea or really good path to pursue six months ago, 12 months ago, a year and a half ago, that if it isn't, if it turns out that it's not, you know, the best place to go, then, you know, it's okay. Mm. Um, and so, and so, yeah, we kind of, uh, have been almost structuring things that way. And so, and so, yeah, I mean, like a year from now, I don't know, like hopefully we'll still be making some good music. Hopefully we'll still be playing some shows, but you know, I think, uh, a lot of things can change and, and totally. you know, it's, it's all, uh, it's all fun and exciting. And yeah, we're, uh, I'm a huge advocate for uh, 90 day or quarterly planning. Like I think yeah. it's the best thing ever because it's just the perfect time period. Like, like you said, if you mess up or you make the wrong decision, it's fine. Like it's 90 days. It's not yeah. a whole year, um, but it's still like, it's a lot of time. You can get serious stuff done. It's enough time to think of a couple ideas and run with them, mm. but not too much time where, Oh my God, I just spent the last year working on something and it's just yeah. not what I thought it was going to be. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, anyone who's listening out there, think about things in terms of quarterly or 90 days. <laughs> you never know. I have one more question. Uh, and I always leave this till last cause everyone hates it. Uh, <laughs> you're walking, you're walking down the street and a UFO comes along and, uh, they're going to abduct both of you, but they give you a, a piece of paper and a pen. And they say, you can write three pieces of advice on this to leave behind. What is on that piece of paper? This is going to be hard for you too, because you're, there's two of yeah. you. So I don't know how you're going to figure this out. Good luck. Wait, so do we get six things if there's two of us? <laughs> I get, I get I, three, Pete gets three. I, I can't think of six things. That's all right. I can think <laughs> of two if you want one. Uh, okay, sure. Well, I'm also like a massive science fiction fan. So the fact that this whole exercise is with aliens has me thinking like, all right, my first thing is writing that aliens do exist. Um, my second thing, like, um, so my first thing is do what you love, period. Like it, it's so simple and some people might think it's cliche, but like I think if you do what you love, you're going to be happy. Um I don't know if I just feel, I feel like I might've also stolen one of Pete's slots with that one. But well, I mean, with the great. aliens and that one, like you already, you already yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> This is a tough question, Sam. Yeah. Oh, uh, we can, we can end it too. No, 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 no. We have three. I mean, this is literally, <laughs> I, I'm assuming I'm getting abducted and I'm never coming back. So I, okay. I got one. I got one. Uh, and this is maybe going to come off as a bit like pessimistic, but I think for me, it's, it's a huge personal lesson. I've learned that the, the things that you think are going to make you happy usually don't make you happy. Mm. I mean, there have been a lot of things I think in like for me personally, but I mean a really like a great experience that, that I've had and been super fortunate to have is that the last year and a half or so I've, I've been doing music full time. And 
when I really got into music, like deciding, you know, this is what I want to do. And like, my dream is to be a traveling DJ and the whole thing, even before Tom and I were working together, like six, seven years ago, I had this idea that, you know, I was going to go through like, and like work and extremely hard and make all these big sacrifices. And then once I get to, you know, be a, a real music producer, then I'll be happy. Mm. And now that I'm here, it's, it's great and I love it and I've had the most incredible experience, but there are other things in, in my life that have made me so much happier. Um, you know, and, and it's a simple stuff and it's, you know, it's friends, it's family, it's, you know, spending, you know, quality time with the people that you really love. And so, I mean, I think, yeah, you know, it's, it's great to have these goals and great to have these ambitions, but don't like totally calibrate your happiness based upon these huge lofty goals that you have because it's totally okay to let yourself be happy and have some fun along the way too not that i didn't because you know i've i've you know i've been it's it's been it's been an amazing journey for sure and it will continue to be but the the things that you think are going to make you happy like that's the things that are going to make you happiest you know they're they're a lot simpler than those bigger things i think yeah, I think that's crucial advice. I get a lot of emails from people who are like, oh, you know, my life is so miserable. I got one the other day from this guy who's probably in his mid-30s and he needs to make music full-time. Like it needs to be his whole thing. Next Martin Garrix, that kind of thing. Um, and he's like, help me get away from my miserable life. It's like, dude, if you have a miserable life right now, like getting to that point isn't going to fix that for you. Like, yeah. like there's a deeper issue there. You need to be able, you need to figure out how to be happy or whatever uh, during the process. And you know, I think the way that I always look at it too is, you know, we've been lucky enough to play some really awesome shows. Like, you know, we mm. we played at Echo Stage a bunch. We played the, the huge warehouse parties here in New York. And for me, hands down, the most fun that I've ever had DJing with Tom was in this bar in DC like two years ago with a couple of our buddies and there was probably 40 people there and we played techno until five in the morning and the bouncers came around and put drinks, everyone's drinks in the solo cups because they couldn't have the glass cups anymore because it was past, you know, like serving alcohol hours. And it was literally that night that I remember we, we left that club, we were in a car on the way home and we were making trance at that time. And it was like, we need to make that kind of music. Because it was like, and looking back, like that night was so much fun. And it was just the two of us with like, you know, in a bar with 40 people and a couple of, a bunch of our friends. And so doing music full time hasn't like, doesn't recreate that feeling. It's, yeah. All right. I have, I have my, I have my third piece. Um, and hopefully this, I have my six more pieces. Hopefully this makes up for my, (laughs) hopefully this makes up for my abysmal do what you love. I was so like, so focused on this alien beam that was coming down that I was blinded and couldn't think of anything better than that the first time. But um, this is, I, this is a, I think, a good piece of advice that I received. Uh, and it's that nobody will care more about your passion project than you will. It's, it's whether you're a writer or a musician or you're writing poetry or you're singing or you're, you're doing anything where you're creating a publicist won't care more about it. Even your fans won't care more about it. Your manager won't care more about it. They could love your stuff, but they won't care about it as much as you do. And I think that comes back around to this idea of 
in, invest in yourself, put the time in, try and be your own promoter, try and be your own publicist, try and be your own agent, try and be your own manager, because you're going to care so much more about it than anyone else. So just, uh, yeah, just be okay with that. And, uh, I think you'll be good. So yes, great advice. Pete, Tom, thank you so much for your time. Uh, This has been a great conversation. Finally, where can people find you online? So we're, uh, pretty much any social. If you go to we are Andon, so facebook.com backslash we are Andon, uh, Twitter handle is we are Andon. You search Andon, A N D E N on Spotify. Uh, you should find us and not Anderson pack. Uh, <laughs> we are Andon. That is yeah. us. And thank you, Sam. This is a blast. Yeah. Really appreciate you dialing in. This is awesome. Great conversation. Of course.